0: In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, we're introduced to one of the most beloved characters in the entire Narnia series. His name is Reepicheep. He's the faithful servant to Aslan. And now, what's essential to know about Reepicheep is that his entire life is driven by one desire. It's to obey his king, Aslan, and to eventually live in Aslan's country for the rest of his days. In fact, that was the orientation of his heart throughout the entire series. At one point, he declares to Prince Caspian this staggering remark. He says, there are 12 of us talking mice, and I place all the resources of my people unreservedly at Aslan's disposal. So this quote summarizes the passion of his heart. He wished to serve, obey, and fight at whatever cost That his obedient service to the rightful king of Narnia would culminate in the enjoyment of the king forever. And that's exactly what happens. Reepicheep makes his way all the way to the end of the world, obedient to his king. And so as Reepicheep and his friends sail their way toward the world's end, they see Aslan's country far off in the distance. And Reepicheep says his farewell, but even in his goodbyes to his friends, his attention is entirely set on what lays before him. He can't contain his excitement. And so his faith-filled, obedient life soon results in the enjoyment of Aslan forever. And so he leaps into this little boat he has, and Lewis writes that the last they saw of him was his silhouette against the green wave as he journeyed on his last great adventure, full of joy. So Reepacheep's faithful obedience is the pathway to blessing, Aslan's country. And in similar fashion, we're going to see in Exodus 35-40 through that Moses called the Israelites to follow the Lord's commands by constructing the tabernacle so that God would dwell among his people. And in a greater degree, God commands Christians to walk in faithful obedience as they await the Lord, that he would dwell among his people for all eternity. And so I want us to be very clear this morning. Obedience to God is the pathway to obedience. The blessing is God himself. And so with that said, We begin our time in Exodus 35. And so if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find our passage on page 75. And while you turn to Exodus 35, feel free to look at your outline. And you're gonna notice that we have three main points this morning. Number one, Israel's obedience. Number two, Israel's blessing. And number three, God's dwelling. And so first... We have Israel's obedience. And so as you are turning to Exodus 35, it's helpful for us all to recall exactly where we've been in the book, right? So you'll remember that in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, Yahweh says to the Israelites, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." And so as God's priests, they're set forth to make him known in all the world and to faithfully obey his commands, which is exactly what we saw all the way back in chapters 20 through 24. And so God calls for Israel to represent him and to obey him. But while Moses is given instructions for the tabernacle to be built, what do the people do? Exodus 32, they craft their own God. They craft a golden calf. And so God's holy people... His holy nation is defiled. And Moses makes an intercession. The covenant is restored. That we saw in Exodus 34. And so what we see this morning is a repentant and a restored people. A people who are called to build God's dwelling, the tabernacle. So follow along with me. Exodus 35, starting in verse 1. It says, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Now, just pause. What's the point of Moses commanding the Sabbath here? Seems kind of random, but it's not. Because the Sabbath is now open to Israel once again, right? Which demonstrates that they depend solely on God rather than themselves. And so what we see is a display of Israel's restored relationship with the Lord in verse 4. Look at it with me. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Look at verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Look at verse 19. The finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons for their services, priests. Verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came Everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches, so nose rings, and earrings, and signet rings, and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord." And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. Verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. So with the relationship restored and the covenant renewed with Israel, we find that these people have, A, eager hearts. And so, number one, the resources are supplied in Exodus 35, 4-29, through, through eager and generous hearts. Now, just look with me at verse 5. It says, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. So this verse is followed by a long list of resources that are supplied in verse 10. You can see it there. There's a ton of things that they're to bring. But the point is that God made sure that the Israelites were supplied with all they needed for their work when they came out of Egypt. How do we know this to be true? Because in verse 5, they bring the Lord's contribution. It's his contribution from his victory, his pillaging over Egypt, but notice that this generosity of these people, they generously gave all that they had. Nobody's twisting the arms of the Israelites. So just listen to the eager language throughout, right? Verse 5, whoever is of a generous heart. Verse 21, everyone whose heart stirred him. Verse 29, all the people whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering, a voluntary offering to the Lord. So there's a complete change here. Remember, just three chapters ago, the Israelites were literally ripping gold earrings from their ears to contribute to the construction of a golden calf. But now, look at what these repentant people have done. They respond to the Lord with generosity. Why? Because they now see how gracious God has been to them. They offer up what has been willingly given to them by the Lord. And through their obedience, the resources for the tabernacle are supplied. You know, we clearly see here, that God stirs the people to give out of love and obedience that they might enjoy him in his tabernacle. In fact, chapter 36, 5 tells us that they gave so much that the builders of the temple tell Moses this, right? In verse 5 of third chapter 36, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded. Verse 6, so the people were restrained from bringing any more. Now, I'd like to just... Pause here for a moment and think about our own hearts. If we've experienced the grace of God in our own lives, how has that changed our attitudes towards all that we have? One of the marks of Israel's love and obedience was joyfully giving for the Lord's work to be done. And so, my question is how about us this morning? Are you quick to make excuses to not be generous? When funds are limited, are we inclined to continue to pursue generosity, not just in money, but every area of our lives, with our talents, with our money, with our time? Are we generous with all all that we have? So, those who recall what God has done in saving them are those who are spurred by faith to joyfully give as an extension of our love. For the Lord Jesus. And so God's people are generous people. May we be the same. So not only are the people eagerly giving in Exodus 35 and 36 for this building project, but the Lord chose specific people for the construction of the tabernacle and the making of the priestly garments. That's what we see with number two, the laborers are stirred. Look at chapter 35, verse 30. It says, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. For what purpose? Look at verse 32. To devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. Chapter 36, verse 1, Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So Bezalel and Oholiab have been stirred by the Lord to be the foreman of the project. And they then teach the rest of the crew how to accomplish the building of their tabernacle. This is God's spiritual house that they are building. And so the picture that we have in chapter 36 is of a whole people. It's all of Israel, men and women, young and old, with stirred hearts and eager hands. They're quick to follow all that the Lord has asked. And notice, this is all done. By the Lord. It's the Lord who provides the contribution to the people who then freely give. It's the Lord who fills the people with the proper abilities to complete the work. This is God's building project. This is God's work. And that's what we find in chapters 36 through 40. God is stirring hearts to accomplish God's work. And so along with their eager hearts... Comes B, faithful obedience. Now we're going to look at chapters 36 through 40, and you may be looking on your outline and thinking, we're nuts going this fast. But I want you to see that this area of the text that we typically begin to get sleepy-eyed when reading, there's a purpose in it. The details are significant. And so we can't miss the point this morning, because what we find is a complete retelling of what God has communicated to Moses in chapters 25 through 30. So, no, this is not the same sermon as we saw with chapter 25 and 30. And so, the question we must ask is why on earth are we rereading what we've already heard? It's because every detail highlights how Israel faithfully obeys God's commands that they follow the blueprints, the very specific blueprints for the tabernacle, down to the smallest and most seemingly insignificant detail. And so they demonstrate how Israel faithfully obey God in hopes for what will come. And so the people's obedience can be boiled down into four sections throughout the course of these chapters. Number one, obedience and construction. Number two, obedience in preparation. Number three, obedience in inspection. And number four, obedience in consecration. So number one, obedience in construction. Follow along as I read, starting in Exodus 36, 8. It says, And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. Verse 10. He coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. Verse 14, he almost made five, He also made five curtains by themselves. Verse 20, then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle. Verse 31, he made bars of acacia wood. Verse 35, he made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Now, I'm only highlighting the beginning of each item created in chapter 36. You're welcome. But the details go on and on. And in chapter 37 and 38, it's the same idea. You've got Bezalel and the craftsmen completing the ornate designs within the tabernacle. And how does this section end in chapter 38, verses 24 through 31? Well, Moses records all the materials used and how much it all costs. Just look at Exodus 34, 24. It says, all the gold that was used for the work. In all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca a head, that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. A hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent, a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was twenty seventy talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils of the altar, the bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle, and all the pegs around the court. Now, what's so important about all this money? Well, it highlights that the people of Israel built the tabernacle honorably. Meaning that there was no deceit, there was no stealing, there was no corruption whatsoever in the creation, in the building project of the tabernacle. And so number one, we have faithful obedience in the construction of God's dwelling place. They were faithful and they kept it pure. Now the work is not complete, is it? Because we see number two, obedience in preparing the priestly garments, which takes place in all of chapter 39. So similarly to what we saw in previous chapters, the craftsmen complete the work entrusted to them by God, and every detail is reported. But in chapter 39, Moses, the author of the book, he uses repetition to display faithful obedience. In fact, Exodus 39 verses 1, verses 5, 7, 21, 26, 29, and 31 all conclude by saying the exact same thing. As the Lord had commanded Moses. And then in verses 32, 42, and 43, here's the repetition The people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So it's clear. There is no possible way that you can leave this section without realizing the main point. Here it is Israel faithfully obeyed. And so the construction and preparation of every single portion of the tabernacle and the garments for the priests was obeyed to the T. So from this point on, we see a shift. The focal point turns away from the Israelites and zooms in on the obedience of the mediator. It zooms in on Moses And so not only do we see the people obey the Lord's commands, but we see the leader obeys God's commands. And so in 39 verses 33 and 34, Israel finished the work. They call Moses over to the tabernacle, right? Come look at what we have done. Come look at the construction project. And so what they want to do is they want to ensure that the tabernacle and the priest's garments are up to code. They're up to snuff. That it fits the bill. And so what does Moses do? He inspects the work. So number three, obedience in inspection. Because he takes the time. He walks throughout the building project and he starts checking off the project list to ensure that all that was commanded is perfectly completed. And it's done well. And the text tells us that Moses blessed the work, which demonstrates that Moses approves of the work. He places his stamp of approval on all that has been created by these obedient people. Now just look with me at chapter 39, verse 42. Look how he says this. It says, So the people of Israel had done all the work, and Moses saw all the work. And behold, they had done it, as the Lord had commanded So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Now just make the connection here. Where have we heard language like this before in the Old Testament? Remember Genesis 1? God created all things. God saw everything that he had made and said it was very good. Remember Genesis 2, 2 through 3, which says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And so now Moses looks at all has been made by these obedient people. He declares that the work is finished, and he blesses the Israelites but why is this all so important? Why am I just chucking Genesis 1 and 2 here? Well, Because these are the last words written before the tabernacle. The dwelling place of God is established. And so Moses purposefully declares that the construction of the tabernacle is blessed because it ushers in a new dwelling place for God. It's a new Eden, if you will. But don't miss the main point wrapped around all of this. Moses inspected the work on behalf of the Lord. And Moses faithfully confirmed that the people had done all that the Lord had asked of them. And so once again, the people of Israel obey God in waiting for this new Eden tabernacle. Now the final display of obedience is number four, obedience and consecration of the tabernacle. And we see this in chapter 40, verses 1 through 33, because the Lord actually instructs Moses to now consecrate the tabernacle, consecrate the work that has been done. Why? Because if the tabernacle isn't consecrated, if it isn't purified, then God could never and would never enter in. And so this structure must be holy. Holy. So Moses consecrates it, which we see in chapter 40, verses 9 through 15, right? Once again, check this out. In fact, four times in seven verses, Moses emphasizes this idea, this idea of consecration. Look at verse 9. Then you shall take the anointing oil and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. Holy. Verse 10, you shall consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. Verse 11, you shall also anoint the basin and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his son to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Verse 13, you shall anoint him, Aaron, and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. That's in the tabernacle. So make no mistake, this entire building is holy. It's consecrated, all in preparation for God's presence to dwell amongst his people. And look how Moses concludes this section in verse 16, very similar to as we've seen throughout the last four or so chapter. It says, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. So just catch the big picture here. God's people obeyed all that the Lord commanded from beginning to end. Marks of true faithfulness to God as they have been restored. And so flowing from Israel's obedience comes number two, Israel's blessing. So let's read together Exodus chapter 40 starting in verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would sent, would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, Then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so we see, number two, Israel's blessing. And specifically, God dwells among his people. Just remember with me. We've been in the book of Exodus for a long time now. But go back to Exodus 1 and 2. It began with enslavement and death. And over the course of the book, we've seen God's persistent pursuit of his people, haven't we? Exodus 6.6, Yahweh declared to Moses, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Chapter 19, 5 and 6. God said, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, how is it that these people are God's people and that he will dwell with them? What's the key to this glorious relationship? Notice It's obedience and faithfulness. They obey his voice and they keep his covenant. That's the pathway to enjoying God's glorious presence. They've been marked out and his people live gloriously different from the rest of the world. And so the glory of the Lord dwelling among his people is the mark of God's approval. It declares that All has been carried out obediently through Moses' instruction. And therefore, God is so, so pleased to be with his people. In fact, do you recall what the Lord said in chapter 25? When they were originally being set and given instruction to create, to build the tabernacle? Listen to what it says in chapter 25, verse 8. Let them... Make me a sanctuary. Be obedient in making me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. And so multiple chapters later, that's what happens. We see the climax of the book of Exodus right here. And so let me be very clear the obedience the obedience of God's people is the pathway to blessing. And what's the blessing in chapter 40 of the book of Exodus? It's God himself. God is the blessing of his people. So I just want you to feel the weight of it. The Lord's presence... The fullness of God's glory dwells among men. Just think about it. The one who created all things by his word in six short days. The one who owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. The one who continuously keeps their hearts beating every second. The one who torched Sodom and Gomorrah. The one who unleashed the great flood in human history upon sinful men. The one who called out to Moses in a burning bush. The one who destroyed the wicked Egyptians. And the one who declared, all the earth is mine. Comes down to dwell with his people. What a scene. I mean, can you just imagine the mixture of joy and awe and reverence and fear? I mean, we thought we saw the Israelites shaking on their boots in Exodus 19 when God was dwelling on the top of a mountain. How about now when God infiltrates their camp? That's a sight to be seen. And so if you look at this passage, you look in chapter 40, you see all the repetition of this glory of the Lord. The presence, the cloud descending and covering, filling the place. And it all declares this one glorious anthem for a people who have been beaten and battered, who have been in the wilderness, who have misstepped and sinned greatly. They now see that God has come, that their Lord is amongst them. And so they have a portable Mount Sinai, the great blessing of God's presence dwells in the midst of his people. So not only does God now dwell among his people in Exodus 40, but B, God guides his people on earth. Just look at verses 36 and 38. Verse 36 says, Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so Moses tells us that in every single journey, the people of Israel, they're sent out and God's help, and they're sent out with God's help and God's direction. He's leading his people. Just look at the text, verse 37. If the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out. They're not going anywhere till the day that it was taken up. And once it was taken up, they're moving on out. And so they are completely dependent on the Lord for direction, just as they saw their dependence on the Lord as he drew them out of the land of Egypt. And so God was leading them then in and through Egypt And God is going to lead them out of Mount Sinai. Where are they headed? They're headed to the promised land. Why? Because Yahweh guides Israel as they carry out God's mission in and on the earth. As royal priesthoods, as we've seen in Exodus 19, they are to make him known among the nations. So God is among them. And God is leading them onward and out. And so we've seen all this quite clearly over the last few months. We've had the glorious opportunity to see how God has been using His people. God has been working in His people. And even today we see how the obedience of God's people is the pathway to the blessing of God's presence. Those who keep his commands are those who enjoy God. But how does this all apply to us today? What does this have to do with me and you? Well, praise God that we worship the same God. The same God who pulled the Israelites out from slavery, who commanded them to be set apart and then dwelt among them. This is the same God that we serve right now. And so those who have put their faith and trust in Christ alone, who are trusting in the finished work of Christ, are those who are now called out of their love for the Lord Jesus to pursue obedience to the Lord in waiting for God to dwell among us forever. And so I want to highlight two points of application flowing from the book of Exodus, our chapters 35 through 40 specifically today. And so first... I want us to see that the Christian obeys God's commands. And secondly, the Christian will one day experience God's presence. So first, God's people obey God's commands. So I just want to be very clear from the jump. Obedience does not mean that we must give our best efforts to obey in order to earn our salvation. We're not going all out on legalism here. No, obedience to God is the fruit flowing from our faith in the Lord Jesus. And so the Christian desires to obey because they truly have been saved. And one day, oh, we will be eternally saved. And that's what we see in 1 John 2, 3 through 4. John writes this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, the Lord Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so God's word is abundantly clear. Those who know Jesus love Jesus, and those who love Jesus truly obey Jesus. That's clear for the Christian. And J.C. Ryle unpacks this reality oh so helpfully. (laughs) He says this, Obedience is faith visible, faith acting, and faith manifests. It is the test of real discipleship among the Lord's people. And so then we got some heart work to do, brothers and sisters. What exactly does it look like for the people of God to be obedient, to walk in obedience as God's people. Those who have been radically transformed by the glory of the gospel, inflamed with a love for the Lord Jesus. I think it looks like a bunch of things, but to name a few, we must be obedient to God's great mission. We are proclaimers of the gospel. And so we should be declaring the good news of the gospel to those that we know, those that we love, and those that we meet in the middle of the supermarket. And so this is an area that I struggle with. I I would love to excel still more because I'm prone to pursue comfort and ease rather than pursue gospel conversations with others. I'd rather chuck obedience to the door for the sake of my own well-being and so we must be faithful to continue to pursue godly gospel conversation with others for the glory of God's name. And so it doesn't mean perfection, it doesn't mean a hundred percent success rate, it means intentional and thoughtful interactions about who Jesus is, excuse me, and what he has done. But that's not the only way that we are obedient people. But it may look like also being active in the fight against sin. Things like lust, pride, envy, malice, or hatred. And so those who have been made new are those who don't tolerate sin. Who don't just sit in the swamp of sin, but put to death sin in our hearts and minds by the power of God's spirit. We've been transformed, therefore we live radically new, faithfully obedient lives. Or if you're a parent in the room, obedience looks like loving and discipling your children, raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Or for those who are prone to grumble like me, recalling to mind the call, the command from Philippians 2.14 is helpful. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. That's a specific command in the New Testament. And so brothers and sisters, I do not want us to miss this this morning. As the Lord's people... Obedience is not an afterthought of our faith. It's a daily mark of our faith. We are obedient people. So let me ask the question. In what areas of our lives have we been stagnant regarding obedience to the Lord? Are there areas of your life that you have turned a blind eye to obedience in hopes to cling to what is ungodly? In what ways would you like to grow in obedience? Is your faith visible? Is it acting? And is it apparent? Christ has redeemed us, He has set us apart from the world as His obedient children. And so I pray that we would live obedient lives for Christ's sake, considering the grace that we have experienced and the blessing that lies ahead. And so I do not want us to forget our story about Reepachip. right? The, the one from the introduction, the one who was faithful to Aslan throughout his whole life, which, which was the path to his final enjoyment of Aslan forever. And so the Christian is called and commanded to obey God for their whole lives. And what's the hope for the Christian? Our obedience here and now, driven by the Spirit of God, is leading us to a blessing. And What's the blessing? That we will experience endless joy in God's presence for all eternity. What's the glorious blessing for every obedient Christian? It is God himself. God's the reward of all of heaven. That was the promise in the garden. That was the desire in Exodus. And it will be fulfilled to the uttermost in the end. And so secondly, the Christian will experience God's presence. So if you don't mind, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21 we got to see this. It is a glorious passage. So while you're turning to Revelation 21, I'd like to remind you that throughout the entire narrative of Scripture, the unending promise for the believer is that God will dwell in the presence of his people forever, just like we saw in Exodus 35 through 40. And so God comes to dwell with his people. But I want us not to miss this the physical picture that we saw in Exodus 35 through 40 points us this morning to a greater spiritual reality. And so the, the tabernacle is a foretaste of the new creation where God will once and for all dwell among his people. So in the end, and at the end, what we get from God is God himself. He is the blessing of his people. He is truly the one that we will enjoy. Just listen and follow along. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. Do you hear that Exodus 19 language? He will be among them. Keep reading. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, can you even wait for this day? God is coming for his pure bride. And so in the same way that God came down and dwelt among his people in Exodus 40, God himself, the tabernacle of God, will be among us. He will be among his people. We will be his people. And tears and death and mourning and crying and pain will be absolutely obliterated. No more sin. Only God who reigns as King and Lord of his people. And so my question this morning is one that I contemplated throughout the past few weeks as I've been preparing. And I've thought to myself, is the blessing of God's presence worth the hassle of light momentary obedience now? Is the blessing of God's presence worth it? Should I be worried about getting duped by God in the end? No. No. This future reality is only known and enjoyed by those who have been transformed by God's spirit. Our obedience connected with our love and our allegiance leads to sweet, sweet bliss. True enjoyment of God where sin and death are no more. What we have... Christian, is at the end of all things, after dealing with difficulty and strife all our days, when we rest forevermore, we get to enjoy God. Full and complete satisfaction in Him. This is the sweet hope of the believer. However, if you are not yet if you have not yet put your faith in the Lord Jesus, if you have not trusted in the one who lived the life we could never live, who died the death that we most certainly deserve to die, and rose from the dead, then unfortunately, you should not feel safe. You should not feel secure. There is no sense of hope for those who are lost and apart from the Lord Jesus. But why not? Because there's no hope for those who have not trusted in Christ. A life of rejection ends in destruction. So your sin separates you from a holy and good God. And His only promise for the unrepentant is eternal punishment. No peace. No joy. No life. And so if you're in opposition this morning to the one who is to come, and he will come, then I appeal to you this morning to repent of your sin, to look upon the Lord Jesus, that you would not experience his fury on the last day, but that you would experience endless joy in him forever. He is truly mighty to save, and he is mighty to satisfy. So I pray that you would trust on the Lord Jesus, that you would be saved. And you, dear believer, how do you feel about living in the presence of God forever? Is your entire life driven by that one desire to know him now, but know him and enjoy him for all eternity? Are you following the pathway of obedience as an outpouring of the faith that has been given to you through Christ's precious work? Here's my charge to you. Let the glorious redemption that we have experienced through the Lord Jesus Christ drive our commitment to his service and the promise of our future dwelling with God, that we would would be stirring our hearts all of our days to live radically separated from the world and living wholeheartedly in radical obedience to him because my, oh my, he is worthy of our praise now and he is worthy forevermore. So may God give us the grace right now to be a people who walk in faithful obedience to the Lord with taste buds for heaven's joy as we await the day when our King dwells among His people forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus, the One who lived the life that we could never live, who died the death we deserved and rose from the dead three days later as King of all things, God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus that he now ushers his people by faith for one day to be revealed in your presence. God, we pray that as we go through life that we would be walking as faithful servants of you, that we would be faithful to the tasks that we have been given, that we would be obedient servants which we know is the pathway to enjoying your glory forever. God, we pray that we would truly have taste buds for heaven's joy that we would hate sin, and that we would walk in righteousness for Christ's name's sake. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.